Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History. I'm Stephen Colebrook. Today I'll be speaking with Emily Suzanne Johnson, author of This Is Our Message, Women's Leadership in the New Christian Right, which was published in February 2019 by Oxford University Press. In her book, Johnson upends traditional narratives of the religious rights by focusing on the role of women's leadership in American evangelicalism from the 1970s to the present day. Emily, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So I'd like to begin by asking you about your own intellectual background and what brought you to the topic of women's leadership in the religious right. Um, Absolutely. So I am Canadian. Um, I did my undergraduate degree in Canada, um, and I actually had no intention of doing religious history or political history when I went to graduate school. Um, I've always done women's history. Mm. Um, But when I went to grad school, I was very interested in the history of food. Um, And then I started reading about the New Christian Right, partly because it was something I had grown up knowing about, but that was just foreign enough to be really interesting. Um, And what I noticed was that women were not really present in those histories, or if they were present, they were his, they were present as grassroots activists um, and not as leaders. And so, mm. um, so I'm, I'm Canadian, half my family is American, and that half of the family is very much a part of this movement, very conservative. And so I sort of grew up knowing that there were these female leaders of this movement. And in fact, that in my own family, it was women who led the charge on the grassroots level. It wasn't just women sort of following what men were doing. And so I became really interested in figuring out more about that history, figuring out more about why women were being left out and then telling that story, because I think it's an important story for understanding this movement. Mm. Great, fantastic. So that sort of leads nicely into my first question about your book, which is your decision to use collective biography. I mean, you mentioned that you're you're wanting to sort of chart the the role that women have had in in leadership. Uh, so why did you decide to use this particular methodology? Um, so partly it was a practical consideration. Um, it is really nice to write a book when you know exactly what each of the chapters are going to be um, and mm-hmm. to be able to say, I am writing this chapter about this person and it has a clear beginning and end. And I suspected that when I started the project and that was sort of borne out by my experience of writing the book and watching other people write books, um, which are also wonderful books, but that were hard for them to figure out what the chapters were as they went along. It was really nice for me to just be able to say, here's this chapter, it's about this person, and now it's done. Mm. Um, But I also wanted to pick people who everyone, or at least everyone who studies this history or lived through this moment would automatically know, because I knew that I was already going to be 
making a difficult argument that women were important leaders in the movement. And I thought that that case would be easier to make if I used names of people that people would already know, rather than trying to introduce new characters and say this person was really important. It was easier to take someone with name recognition and say, look, here's why what she is doing is leadership. So I deliberately chose characters that would already be familiar to my audiences. Right. So, I mean, most people uh, who study queer history are aware of Anita Bryant. So just by kind of name recognition alone, you're able to to make a better case. Yes. And um, lucky for me, I was writing that chapter just when Gus Van Sant's film Milk came out. Um, okay, yeah. For- for a younger generation, I would say, I'm studying Anita Bryant, and they'd sort of look at me quizzically, and I would say, oh, you know, the the villain in Milk, and then they wouldn't know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. So um, what were the uh, distinctive features of this, this subculture that was developed by conservative evangelical women in the late 20th century? So... Um, In order to answer that question, like a true historian, I'm going to go back a little bit further. Um, Mm -hmm. So in the 1920s um, in the U.S., there's the Scopes Monkey Trial, which is this big trial about whether evolution can be taught in public schools. Um, And fundamentalists won the court case, but they were sort of embarrassed by the coverage of the court case um, that portrayed them as being sort of bumpkins and whatever. And so for a long time in religious history, we had this narrative that after the 1920s, fundamentalists just kind of disappear and then suddenly Mm -hmm. emerge in the 1970s out of nowhere. Um, And we know now that that's not true. What actually happened is that they folded in on themselves, but started to build these subcultures. And so started to build Christian universities and Christian book publishers and create a subculture in which they could really be, in their own words, in the world, but not of the world. So everything that they consumed, all the culture they consumed was embedded in their particular religious and political views. Um, And that really took off after World War II when just post-war prosperity in general saw a huge growth in culture industries, both secular and religious, um, but particularly Christian book publishers um, start publishing much more than they had been, start competing with each other, and they have to look for new ways to sell books, new ways to outcompete each other. And one thing that they do is they had mostly been um, selling Bibles and books for missionaries. And one thing they do is they say, oh, women have been buying most of our books forever, pretty much. What if we wrote and sold books specifically for women and by women? Mm. And so they start seeking out female authors and female authors start taking on this kind of celebrity within the movement. Pretty soon they're going on speaking tours. They're um, leading their own women's conferences. And we see the growth of this very specific evangelical women's subculture that is interdenominational, that is national, and that's focused on issues of sex and gender and family and parenthood, because these are the things that women are sort of allowed to teach about. Um, 
But as this subculture grows and becomes a really important part of evangelical subculture, you can see that it sets the stage for some of the rhetoric of the political movement that emerges in sort of the decade, decade and a half afterwards. Integrating this story of this this, uh, this subculture, how does that change our dominant narratives of the rise of the Christian right and also the role that gender politics played in that? So things like complementarian theology, which upheld separate gender roles for women and men, would suggest that there would be little space for uh, women's leadership, but you obviously change that narrative. How does that feed into the dominant narratives we have of late 20th century religious history? So I think that um, some of the early narratives that we have sort of take male leaders at their word. Um, Jerry Falwell Mm -hmm. and Pat Robertson are obviously really good at self-promotion. And early narratives sort of say, okay, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson told us that they were the main leaders. They're the main people who got press. And we go back and say, oh, they say that they are radicalized by... Um, Roe v. Wade, mostly. And we take them at that their word and we say, okay, this is a bunch of men who want to legislate women's bodies. If we go back further and we look at evangelical women's culture and evangelical subculture more broadly as being kind of the precursor to this history, we can see those political currents developing um, in much more subtle ways, and we can see women shaping those political currents. So you mentioned complementarianism, which from a feminist standpoint, absolutely looks like a patriarchal system. So complementarianism says men and women have naturally different roles. It's biological determinism. Men and women have complementary, different roles. They're both important, but they're different. Um, and they should stay in their own lane, basically. Yeah, yeah. That is actually sort of an update that's pushed within evangelical women's culture from an older version of submission doctrine, which is that men and women have separate roles. They are not equal. Men are better than women in the hierarchy of things, and women should totally submit to men. Um, So in the early literature of evangelical women's culture, you see women saying like, oh, I absolutely believe in submission doctrine. I I think submission doctrine is great. But I think that rather than having this hierarchy, maybe we have separate roles, but they're equal. And so they start to push complementarianism as sort of a more egalitarian form of submission doctrine. And so while it doesn't go all the way to feminism, it's still actually a really important renegotiation by women of what conservative gender theology looks like. Mm. And what what drives that renegotiation? Um, I mean, really, I think it's the fact that women are being given a voice in this culture. So before this, there are sex and marriage and family manuals, but they're all written by men in the 20s and 30s. Um, And as they're being written by women, women are promoting to a certain extent the traditional 
submission doctrine, but they're also, they're renegotiating it in ways that better fit their own lives and better fit their own interests. So they're not throwing a a bomb into the whole system, but they're saying, you know, I think that what God meant when he talked about submission was just submission within the family. I don't think women have to submit to men in every arena of life. There should just be submission within the family. And really, there just needs to be submission when there's a point of disagreement. Usually, it should be compromised. But if we can't compromise, then the man can make a decision. So there's all these sort of ways of not exactly throwing submission away, but as a woman, making it work for themselves better. Mm. Great. So you mentioned uh, sex manuals written by evangelical women, which dovetails nicely into um, your 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 subject, the subject of your first chapter, which is about Maribel Morgan. Um, could you first introduce her for uh, for our listeners, and then describe exactly what she did in the early nineteen seventies? Absolutely. So Maribel Morgan was is most famous as the author of a sex and marriage manual called The Total Woman, um, which she published in 1973. Um, she started out giving these classes in her home, um, sort of marriage classes, to first people from her own church, then people from other churches, which is a very typical origin story within evangelical mm-hmm. women. And then actually she was friends with Anita Bryant um, and Anita Bryant introduced Maribel Morgan to her publisher and Maribel Morgan sort of as a favor, they gave Maribel Morgan this contract for 5,000 copies of her book. Within five years, it had sold 3 million copies, which is unbelievable. Um, But essentially it was, it's a marriage manual that promotes Submission, sort of, with a lot of those um, alterations that I described before. Um, But it's also very sexy. So um, she's most famous for the suggestion that women should meet their husbands at the door wearing nothing but saran wrap. That's not actually in her book. It's from a public appearance that she did promoting the book. Um, But there's all sorts of suggestions like that. It's a lot of take a bubble bath right before your husband comes home and scent the sheets with lavender, but also like wear kinky costumes and have kinky sex. And that's what God wants for you. You met, you have a really interesting argument in in this chapter about how Morgan sort of negotiated a public private role and also uh, tried to do that uh, by depoliticizing her rhetoric. Could you could you describe that argument for us? Yeah. So um, one of the reasons that the new Christian right has seemed to appear out of nowhere is that there was a real allergy, I think, among some conservative Christians, many conservative Christians, with mixing religion and politics. And so there's this moment in the late 70s where a lot of conservative Christians say, oh, we're comfortable being political now, but it's hard to trace that prehistory. So part of what I'm trying to do by looking at things like marriage manuals is to trace that prehistory. Where does that politics come from before people are willing to claim a political identity? Mm. And Maribel Morgan is a perfect example of that because she 
writes this marriage manual that has a lot of now recognizably political claims in it. Um, You should improve your marriage so that your son doesn't grow up to be gay and so that your um, daughter doesn't grow up to be a feminist. But she sees this as totally, totally apolitical when she's writing it and is surprised when people start to use it as a totem of what is wrong with patriarchal marriages. Um, So a lot of the publicity for her book ends up being her on Donahue literally pitted against feminists who are yelling at her about her marriage. Mm. Um, And I think that we can take her at her word that she didn't intend for this to be political, um, that this didn't seem political to her because a lot of those claims um, about having a good marriage so that your kids don't grow up to be gay or juvenile delinquents or whatever it is, those are things that we see in every issue of Ladies' Home Journal in 1940 and 1940, or the 1940s and 1950s, um, in all the pop psychology. This is stuff that's sort of fundamentally apolitical as Maribel Morgan is growing up. And then as feminism and the gay rights movement gain more traction, they become political statements in a way that I think a lot of conservative Christians didn't anticipate. Um, And that creates the kind of sense of cultural alienation that allows them to want to become political later. So Maribel Morgan never became comfortable with calling herself explicitly political. She still doesn't. And I think Now, that's a political choice that she's making. But I think that in 1973, she really didn't understand the things she was saying to have a political bent because the political landscape was changing around her in that moment. Mm. Great. So um, what was Morgan's relationship with the uh, Anita Bryant, the subject of your second chapter, um, so they were friends. They both they were both in Miami. Um, as far as I can attend, as far as I can tell, they attended different churches, um, but they knew each other through um, these kinds of interdenominational women's groups. Um, they were both quite wealthy um, white women living in the same neighborhood in Miami, um, and so they seem to have met each other through women's Bible studies, but they became quite close. Um, And so they're mentioned in each other's books, although there seems to have been a falling out when Anita Bryant became a political activist. Um, And so I think they're still friends, but not close. And when I interviewed Maribel Morgan, she, that was sort of as much as she wanted to say about it. Yeah, so that that dovetails nicely into my next question, which is about Bryant's political campaign, um, which is often kind of seen as a stand-in almost for the the gay rights backlash of the 1970s. Uh, So I was wondering how gender played out in in Bryant's decision to, to engage in political activism. So with Bryant, I think her leadership is a function of gender, but also a function of her celebrity. So um, Mm. she becomes known as this political activist in 1977 um, in response to an anti-discrimination bill that includes um, gay rights or that puts gay rights into the existing anti-discrimination code in Miami-Dade County. Um, And 
But before that, she had been a pretty big celebrity among evangelicals and a reasonable celebrity in the wider world. She had a couple top 40 hits. And she had written 10 autobiographies between um, 1970 and 1978. Um, which <laughs> That's I, more if, than one a year. Wow, okay. <laughs> it is more than one a year. They're not big. And if she existed in the 21st century, she would just be like a really popular mommy blogger, but that didn't exist. So instead, she's right. essentially publishing blogs in paperback format. Mm-hmm. Um, but so people were invested in her evangelicals in particular were invested in who she was. And, um, she had endorsed the campaign of County commissioner, Ruth Shack, because Ruth Shack was the wife of Bryant's booking agent. Um, and then Ruth Shack's first thing to do in office was to introduce this anti-discrimination bill. And so part of it was that Bryant was, personally embarrassed and wanted to tell everyone that she didn't support this. Um, But she did so in a really gendered way. So she called her um, organization Save Our Children. Um, She was sued by a different agency called Save the Children. So then she changed it to Protect America's Children Um, and very much emphasized at first that she didn't want to be political, that she didn't want to have to take on this leadership role, but that as a mother, it was her duty to do so, that she had to protect children specifically from the specter of gay teachers um, because anti-discrimination meant that people couldn't be fired just for being gay. And what she really focused on was this idea that that would mean that public teacher or public school teachers and even private school teachers couldn't be fired for being gay. Um, and so we get from Anita Bryant this sort of persistent idea that, and she says this in so many words, that because gay people can't reproduce, they have to recruit. So she takes this very old idea um, of gay people as child molesters and presents herself as this mother just trying to protect all children um, as a way to justify her leadership. Um, Because in a way, her community still is a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of women's leadership. She also has this great line in one of her books where she says, you know, I'm really uncomfortable with the idea of being a woman and being a leader. I, I don't think that's what God wants women to do. And her pastor says, well, the men in the community have all failed. And when, when all the men fail, then God sometimes raises up a woman. Um, so she really explicitly wrestles with this idea of what it means to be a woman and to be a leader in this movement. So that, uh, that sense of being uh, maybe an exception uh, that, that proves the rule almost um, is a quite a key dynamic in many of these women's lives, uh, what strategies did they use to kind of claim that they had to get involved politically, uh, as Bryant did? And what was the sort of backdrop for that? What was driving it? What was the theology behind it? So um, what's really interesting is that without necessarily knowing this history explicitly, they use a lot of the same justifications that female preachers had used in the United States since, well, since before it was the United States, um, since the 17th century. 
um, women would say things like, I didn't want to be a preacher, but then, but God called me and then I still didn't want to be a preacher, but he made me really sick and I prayed and he told me that he would only make me better if I would preach. Mm -hmm. Um, We see a similar story um, that Anita Bryant tells about her mental health. Um, You also see people saying, um, and Anita Bryant does this as well, people saying, well, I, I wouldn't have gotten involved, but my pastor told me I had to. Um, Anita Bryant very much calls on that. And then she tells a story about, so her pastor tells her she has to get involved. Her husband tells her she has to get involved. So this still fits within the theology of submission. And then she prays and God tells her she has to get involved. And then she opens up a Bible to the story of Deborah, who was an important leader in the Hebrew Bible. And all of these things tell her that she has the permission of the important hierarchy, God, pastor, husband. Um, Beverly LaHaye, who is the subject of the next chapter, uses a slightly different tact, but one that is also common throughout American history, which is the idea that this is just too urgent, that the apocalypse is upon us. And in the apocalypse, the rules are kind of suspended in a way. So we see early 20th century um, missionaries using this idea that this is so urgent that to win people's souls before the apocalypse is so urgent that we're going to let women be missionaries in ways that we might not be totally comfortable with. We're going to let them be missionaries domestically and we're going to let them teach men sometimes because we just really have to get this done in time. Um, and you see Beverly LaHaye sort of saying similar things that this is apocalyptic, that um, the changes in American culture are so urgent that every good Christian has to get involved, even if that means women have to step outside their comfort zones in order to do so. Oh, that's really interesting. So that kind of shows that the very apocalyptic uh, notions that exist within American evangelicalism, sort of uh, what Matthew Avery Sutton has recently written about, uh, whilst we would kind of assume that's quite a reactionary thing, also allowed space for women to assert their own space in 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 the uh, subculture. Would that be what what we, you would argue? Yes, um, absolutely. I think. And, and that's been the case, not just in the 1970s, although it's certainly true in the 1970s, but it, it's the case sort of going back to various periods of um, increased apocalypticism in American history that they provide opportunities for women um, and other people who might not otherwise be allowed to preach to take new roles in the community because of the sense of urgency. Mm. Great. So uh, let's move on briefly to the subject of your third chapter, who you've already mentioned, Beverly LaHaye. Um, who was she, first of all, and what was her significance for the role of women in the new, rise of the new right? So um, many listeners might be more familiar with her husband, Tim LaHaye, um, because he wrote the popular Left Behind series of novels in the 1990s, mm-hmm. which was an apocalyptic series of novels um there's a recent movie with nick cage which is yeah, very really bad terrible film <laughs> yeah it's so bad yeah. um the one in the 1990s with kirk cameron is better but only if you love camp which i do yeah I know <laughs> <what I'm saying. laughs> yes so um 
Tim LaHaye is described at one point by Jerry Falwell as the most important man you've never heard of. Um, he's involved in founding a lot of the big organizations of the new Christian right that we would recognize. But Beverly LaHaye founds, um, in 1979, she founds Concerned Women for America, um, which is today the largest conservative Christian lobbying group in the United States. Um, and one of the things I love about her is she founds this organization in 1979. By February of 1979, she is saying, Concerned Women for America, soon to be the largest conservative <laughs> Christian organization. <laughs> and it is, now it is. So, um, so Concerned Women for America um, starts out as the small group in San Diego, um, within a few years, moves to Washington, D.C., um, and it becomes a direct lobbying group in Washington. Um, CWA um, is the acronym. Um, pioneers some really important legal strategies that the New Christian right now uses more broadly, but they're one of the first organizations to really go all in on writing amicus briefs and presenting before the Supreme Court in cases that are important to them, starting with homeschooling, but then expanding out to things like abortion, um, religious freedom, gay marriage, all of those sorts of things. Um, they also continue to organize grassroots groups across the country. So within six years, they have um, what they call prayer action chapters in almost every state, um, 49 out of 50 states plus Germany, um, that, and they coordinate lobbying efforts on the national level, but also state and local organizing towards getting legislation passed or repealed that fits with their broader agenda. And so in a lot of ways, they've been one of the most influential groups um, in terms of passing and promoting socially conservative legislation over the past 40 years. Great. So your fourth chapter then moves on to an individual called Tammy Faye Baker. Um, could you first of all describe who she was again, um, but also how her sort of dis quite, you know, her theology was quite distinct from the others and how that feeded into her own uh, role uh, as a leader? Yes. Um, so Tammy Faye Baker was a televangelist. Um, she is most famous for the kind of gobs of makeup that she wore. Um, she actually had her whole face tattooed on and then would still put a full face of makeup on over that. Um, so she's especially famous for her eyelashes. Um, but what I think is more important about her is that she is this figure in the New Christian Right. Um, her husband, Jim Baker, is sort of the leading figure in their ministry, but they're very much in it together. Um, and in the 1980s, they have the largest televangelical ministry in the U.S. They have a Christian theme park that is the okay. third most visited park in the U.S. after the Disney's. Um, and Tammy Faye Baker is interesting because, as you said, her theology is really different in some ways. So she's friends with Jerry Falwell. She They're sort of friends with Reagan. Um, but 
they are Pentecostal rather than fundamentalist. So Pentecostalism is the branch of evangelicalism that is very charismatic, very emotional, um, speaking in tongues, sort of very lively services. Um, And that in contrast to fundamentalism, tends to rely more on direct communication with God. So they certainly read the Bible. The Bible is very important. Um, But even more important is the sense of praying and receiving direct guidance from God. And so Tammy Faye Baker grew up in a Pentecostal church that was much more on the fundamentalist side, much more about strict rules and condemnation of sin. And that was really hurtful to her growing up, um, especially after her mom was divorced and was still allowed to play piano in the church, but was shunned socially. And when Tammy Faye Baker is leading her own ministry, she says, we're not going to do that. We are just going to love people. We're just going to let God decide. And so for some fundamentalists, this is a very wishy-washy approach to faith. Um, But for other um, congregants, it's a really sort of welcoming and beautiful thing. And so although the Baker's ministry is very anti-abortion, although they're involved with Jerry Falwell and with some of his I Love America rallies, Tammy Faye Baker is also one of the very first people to interview on television and not just on Christian television, but on television at all. Um, an HIV positive gay man. Um, So this is in 1985. And before that, the news media is very much talking about AIDS in an us versus them language, Mm -hmm. right? How can we stay safe from this plague that's over there? Um, And we're not seeing a lot of people with AIDS being able to speak for themselves. So Tammy Faye Baker has this um, HIV positive gay minister named Steve Peters. Um, He's still alive, one of the oldest survivor or longest living survivors. Um, And the interview is not hostile. It's, it's not fully um, affirming. She still Mm. definitely has moments where she says things like, Oh, maybe you haven't given women enough of a try. Like maybe just try making out with a woman and see what happens. Um, And, they both sort of play into stereotypes. He says he knew he was gay because he really liked Peter Pan growing up. Right. So there are things that in 2019 we look at and they're not quite what we would want. Yeah. A little bit crazy. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But at the same time, she is saying things like we need to accept gay people in our congregations at a moment where gay people are being, even people who got, the disease through blood transfusions are being kicked out of their congregations because people are so afraid. And she's saying, we need to welcome gay people. We need to welcome people who are being seen as the most other in this epidemic. And she's condemning Christians who are not being welcoming enough. She doesn't at any point condemn Steve Peters. Um, And so there's this big scandal. The ministry falls apart in 1987 because of sexual and financial indiscretions um, on the part of Jim Baker. Indiscretions is not quite strong enough, but I never know what to say there. Mm -hmm. Um, And Tammy Faye Baker, um, bless her heart, is rejected by 
the Christian community, um, but, and is being ruthlessly in some ways made fun of by the gay community, but she doesn't understand the irony. So they're naming their dogs after her. They're doing like drag shows, dressing up like her. And she just sees this as a form of love. So she loves them back in a way. And she just um, kind of overcomes the irony by not seeing it and has the second life as a an advocate of queer people. Um, and again, she never becomes fully affirming. She still always believes that homosexuality is a sin, but she spends her life writing a column for a queer youth magazine in which her advice is always be yourself, be who you are, be who God wants you to be, um, which is an affirming thing for her to say. She's not saying God wants you to be straight. She's saying be who you feel that you really are. Um, she hosts drag lookalike contests and drag bingo to raise money for AIDS. Um, and so it's just, it's a very different story, but it's not a story of breaking with the Christian community. It's a story of a really different theology. And for me, it's gendered because I think she's able to do this because in a way people take her less seriously because she's a woman. Um, the reason she's never convicted on the financial crimes is because nobody really told her about the financial crimes that were happening because she's a woman. She's still allowed to lead the ministry, but she doesn't have to be involved in in the day-to-day -day business because why would a woman need to be involved in that? And she can do these things on her show, like interview Steve Peters, and it's just taken less seriously because uh, she's just... She's, again, being a mother. She frames it as a mother. Um, and so um, Anita Bryant gets away with her anti-gay campaign because she says, I'm a mother. I have to protect my children. Tammy Faye Baker gets away with the Steve Peter interview because she says, I'm a mother and I can imagine my son coming out as gay and I would still love him and we should still love the way that Jesus would love. Um so it's a very different way of taking this framing that has allowed women to take leadership positions in their communities and using it in almost opposite ways. And the Bakers actually had Anita Bryant on their program to promote her anti-gay rights campaign earlier. So it, it's a very elastic politics mm -hmm. at the Baker. Mm, much more elastic than we, we often assume the Christian right to be. Um, so so, I, I mean, I found that that part about Baker's unlikely rise as a gay icon, one of the most fascinating parts of the book. I really enjoyed your, your section on that. Um, so your final chapter brings a narrative forward to a more kind of contemporary setting uh, with sections on Sarah Palin and Michelle Bachman. Could you um, describe for us how this evangelical subculture has influenced contemporary politics? Absolutely. So a lot of the rhetoric that is formed in the 1970s carries through till today. Um, I was almost surprised, um, although I, I should have expected it, but I was surprised how much the rhetoric sounded the same. Like if you closed your eyes and squinted, it could have been a rally today instead of pamphlets from the 1970s. So we still hear this language of child protection mm -hmm. around gay rights that um, children have to be protected from gay people, as ridiculous as that is. We still in the churches see this language about um, 
complementarianism, very much being negotiated, being changed gradually through literature um, written by and for women. So again, not throwing out submission doctrine, not throwing out complementarianism, but sort of moving it towards these more egalitarian um, ideas. Um, and in the political realm, I think the negotiations of political identities that we see among the women that I study in the 1970s create permission and room for women to take on political leadership in new ways um, in the modern era. So it wouldn't have been possible for someone like Anita Bryant to become a congresswoman um, or to run for vice president in the 1970s. Um, Phyllis Schlafly, who is a Catholic activist, mm -hmm. did run for Congress several times, um, but didn't win which is important, and also um, really came at politics from a different perspective than the women that I study, um, partly because of her Catholicism, partly just because she was interested in politics first and religion was a part of that for her, whereas these women sort of come to politics through their religion. Um, and so I think having people like Beverly LaHaye be people you've grown up seeing changes your idea of what a conservative Christian woman can do within the realm of conservative Christianity. Um, and so Michelle Bachman directly says that Beverly LaHaye was an inspiration to her, that seeing Beverly LaHaye run Concerned Women for America inspired her to take on leadership and inspired her to want to run for political office in order to influence the system from within rather than just through lobbying. Um, Sarah Palin also grew up in this culture. Um, she also would have been aware of these books, um, the books that are written by these women. And you very much see her language about gender reflecting the kind of language that comes out of this culture, this idea that women can take on leadership roles, but that they lead in a particular kind of way, that their leadership is connected to motherhood, which is part of a longer discourse in American um, political history. Mm -hmm. Women have used the idea of motherhood on all sides of the political spectrum, but um, you can certainly see the influence of people like Beverly LaHaye um, and like Anita Bryant in the language that's mobilized by women like Sarah Palin, um, like Michelle Bachman, or even like Sarah Huckabee Sanders and people in the most recent administration. So I could ask a slightly more pointed question, which is, uh, why do you think evangelical women have overwhelmingly supported Donald Trump, given his history of derogatory comments against women multiple marriages, accusations of sexual harassment, etc. So I think there are three important things going on here. Um, one, let's, so let's address his sort of moral history first. Um, in 2016 or 2015, when there were a lot of Republicans to choose for, from for the nomination, most evangelical women's groups did not support Trump. In fact, I don't think any of them did. Um, the current president of Concerned Women for America um, said something along the lines, someone said, Donald Trump will protect us from something. And I apologize, I forget what the something was. And she immediately retorted and said, well, fine, but who's going to protect him from us? 
once he becomes the nominee, though, she supports his campaign. Um, and that partly has to do with a two-party system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she supports his campaign because he's the Republican. Um, and so there's this language that justifies that support. And you see this from men and women in the evangelical movement, but they say, you know, he might not be a perfect man, but God can use imperfect people. And they often call on the example of King David from the Bible, who also um, had improper sexual relationships with women. Um, He had his neighbor's husband killed Uh famously so that he marry her. And they say, well, if if God could use King David, if King David becomes this important person, then someone like Donald Trump can also be used by God. Um, The other two big things are, one is abortion. Um, There was an empty Supreme Court seat in 2016. um, And it was really, really important to the conservative Christian movement that a pro-life justice be put into that seat. Um, Donald Trump promised that he would put only pro-life justices on the court. And he's kept that promise. Um, Neil Gorsuch and then Brett Kavanaugh. Um, And we see the effects of that, right? We see the recent legislation trying to roll back Roe v. Wade that is possible now because of the balance on the court. Mm -hmm. Um, He's also done the same in lower courts. And so that has chipped away a lot of the resistance to supporting him um, that was there initially. Also having Mike Pence on the ticket, who is very evangelical, was important. But the final thing is that his, um, his opponent was Hillary Clinton. And Hillary Clinton has been the subject of conservative anger um, and in some cases, conspiracy theories for 20 years. Um, And so if it was possible to get people on the fence about Donald Trump to vote for someone in the Democratic Party, it's really unlikely that they would vote for Hillary Clinton Mm -hmm. because of that long history. Um, So I guess it's a tripartite answer. Um, God can use anybody and abortion and Hillary Clinton. <laughs> and, and what are the, the gendered dynamics of that uh, quite deep-rooted, visceral hatred of Hillary Clinton? Yes. Um, I mean, part of it is gender. Famously, she refused to... Um, the First Lady is supposed to produce a cookie recipe, and she refused to do that. Um, and people are still mad about that. <laughs> I did not um, know that. <laughs> Yeah, um, she just she said this is stupid and outdated, and people were so mad about it. Um, and she said other things as well that, like, she said she didn't have a cookie recipe because she had spent her life working, and that obviously hit people the wrong way. Um, but then there are also conspiracy theories about her, um, about Vince Foster, who committed suicide when um, the the Clintons were in office. There are conspiracy theories that he was murdered and the murder was covered up. There's just, there's a lot of baggage there and part of it is gendered and part of it isn't. Okay, great. So I think we have time to just ask you one more question, which is what are you working on now? Um, I am working on a couple of things now. Um, I'm working on a couple of essays coming out of this book. Um, but my next project is a 
queer, well, an oral history of the queer history of Muncie, Indiana, which is where I currently live. Um, it has the oldest gay bar in Indiana, which is surprising for a small city. Um, and I'm really interested in tracing that history while the first generation still exists. Mm. Um, and then my next book is going to be a cultural history of Satanism. Um, so how Americans have thought about and portrayed Satanism and used it as a foil in various kinds of debates about religion and politics. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. I very much look forward to reading those works. Thanks for being on the program today, Emily. Thank you so much.